This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. We're going to be looking at verse 22 all the way through 17.7, which is a single story divided into three scenes. All the scenes are characterized by a need, a response to the need, and a provision for the need. And you'll see this work out as we uh, work our way through it. But setting up the context, after the angel of death passed through Egypt, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go only to change his mind. So he sends his army in fast pursuit. The Israelites find themselves pinned in between the Red Sea on one side and the pursuing Egyptian military on the other. It's there that we have the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. Israel walks through on dry ground and is rescued. Immediately after this, Israel celebrates with an epic worship service. There were tambourines. There was dancing as they rejoiced in what God had done in freeing them from slavery, delivering them from uh, Egyptian tyranny. But I want to show you something in the text that will serve as the launching pad for our musings today. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 21, this is what we read. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the final refrain in the song of praise and celebration for what God had done in saving Israel. Then right after this, immediately after this, in verse 22, here's what we read. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Many of us live life as if we get to Exodus 15, 21... And that's it. We're saved. (laughs) We're delivered. We're set free. Let's praise the rest of our days. Heaven, here we come. But the book of Exodus doesn't end after 1521. There's still 25 more chapters to go. So there's this scene of worship and celebration, and then immediately after that, there's the wilderness. This is the story of the Christian life. God has probably saved most of you in this room. Now, if you're new to the Bible or you're coming back to church after being away from it, we're really glad you're here. We, we welcome you with open arms. This is a fantastic journey to be on. But probably for most of us, God has saved us, but he's not done with us. There's more he wants to do in your life. And that's shown in this story because after you become a Christian... After you become a Christian, life is lived in the wilderness. We're going to look at four aspects to wilderness life this morning. We're going to look at how we get there, what it's like, the reason for it, and how to thrive in it. Wilderness life. How we get there, what it's like, the reason for it, and how to thrive in it. First, how we get there. So the people of Israel have experienced this miracle. They were saved from the tyrannical hand of Pharaoh and his regime. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. They respond in this climactic time of praise and celebration. 
they depart and wander three days in the wilderness, run out of water, and then they grumble against Moses. But is Moses to blame for this? Well, according to chapter 40, the pillar of cloud led them the whole way through their wilderness wanderings. In other words, they're in the wilderness not because Moses did a poor job leading or they took a wrong turn somewhere. They're in the wilderness because God took them there. He took them there. You remember the New Testament story with the disciples and Jesus in the boat? The big storm comes up, threatening to drown them all. The professional fishermen in the boat are freaking out over it all the while Jesus is asleep. They wake the sleeping Jesus. He, he wakes up, he questions their faith, and he calms the storm. Why were they there in the first place? Because before all that happened, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. They're in the storm because Jesus led them into it. The people of Israel are experiencing wilderness life because God led them there. The Christian life is life in the wilderness. If you are a Christian, you're out of Egypt. You've crossed the Red Sea, but you're not yet in the promised land. That's the whole point of Hebrews 3. When you become a Christ follower, you exit Egypt, but you don't immediately enter the promised land. You know what happens after you become a Christian? God leads you into the wilderness. This is so incredibly important to recalibrate our expectations for what we think the Christian life will be like. Wilderness life is hard, but when we believe the promised land should immediately follow the crossing of the Red Sea, the challenges of wilderness life are compounded. C.S. Lewis reflected on this and perhaps put it more clearly than anyone else has. He wrote this. He said, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness. Or to rephrase that, if, if you think the promised land should immediately follow the crossing of the Red Sea. You find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place for correction and it's not so bad. Imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel. The other half think it's a prison. Those who think it a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable. And those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. So that what seems the ugly doctrine is one that comforts and strengthens you in the end. The people who try to hold an optimistic view of this world will become pessimists. The people who hold a pretty stern view of it become optimistic. If you think the Christian life is supposed to take place in the promised land, you will quickly be turned into a pessimist. However, if you think of the Christian life as something that's supposed to be lived in the wilderness, you're going to find yourself comforted and strengthened along the way. Christian life is life in the wilderness, and we get there not because we take a wrong turn. We get there because God leads us there. That's how we get there. Second, what's it like? In a word, it's hard. Now, the Israelites aren't grumbling against Moses because they lack something lavish. In chapter 15, they've run out of water. Chapter 16, they run out of food. Chapter 17, they're out of water again. But it's not just a lack of basic necessities that makes wilderness life difficult. 
Keep in mind, these are not people who have technology and maps ready available to them. They were slaves who had to pack very quickly and lightly in order to make this, this exit. They're out in the wilderness, and they don't know where they are. That's what makes this hard. It'd be different if they could see a map where they all had smartphones with GPS. They don't know where they are. We, you, have a hard time when we don't know where we are. Life in Egypt was more understandable. While it was oppressive, they at least had the security of predictability, of routine, familiarity, a concrete understanding of how life works, even if it was unpleasant. In the wilderness, the life God led them into, life became unpredictable, unfamiliar. Patterns and routines were obliterated. Nothing could be counted on anymore. And the Israelites demonstrate again and again that they would rather take their old life of slavery where they could see and understand most things than live by faith in a God who is invisible to them and where aspects of their lives were inexplicable to them. This is a universal Christian experience. After God saves us, he takes us into the wilderness where reasons for what we experience there are hard to find. When my wife with the birth of our first child, my wife was in labor for 20 hours. And while we were in the hospital, she informed me that this was exceedingly painful. She didn't use those precise words. Uh, I understand, this is, this is a whole lot more painful for the wife, but it is kind of hard for, I mean, it's hard to watch someone you love be tortured, because from my interpretation of things, that's what was happening. Um, however, we, we both knew why we were there. We know where this was going, right? You know that a baby is going to come from this. It's, far, it's a far different kind of scary when you're rushed to the hospital with unexplained chest pains. It's a far different kind of scary. What makes wilderness life difficult for Israel isn't just that they're without water and food. What makes wilderness life difficult is that from their perspective, they're experiencing inexplicable and puzzling chest pains, not birth pains. One of my favorite Bible commentators is Alec Mateer. He was a British scholar. He went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. In his commentary on Exodus, which if you're ever interested in delving more deeply into the book, I wholeheartedly recommend this to you. But in his commentary, he writes this. He says, the Bible's answers to the question why are of a different order. They are true explanations. But they invite us not to think in terms of human logic, but to identify ourselves with God's purposes for us and to trust the divine wisdom which has decreed this or that particular twist in our pathway. I think Mateer is right. In leading us into wilderness life, God is inviting us to jettison human logic over our trials and our sufferings. And he's inviting us to look at them from a different angle. To see them from a different perspective. This is where it gets down to brass tacks. Because in wilderness life, here's where human logic will lead you. When you're walking through the wilderness, when you're experiencing the wilderness, you know where human logic leads you? It leads you to conclude the pain you're experiencing in the wilderness is inexplicable chest pains. 
But God is inviting us to look at them from a different perspective. Not to see wilderness life and the pains and sufferings it brings as inexplicable chest pains, but as birth pains. This is going somewhere good. This is going somewhere productive. Third, the reason for it. After three days of wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites have run out of water. Uh, They come to a place called Marah, but the water there is undrinkable. They do what they always do. They grumble against Moses. Moses does what he always does. He cries out to God. Good leadership principle there, by the way. Cry out to God. God tells Moses to throw a log in the water and it becomes sweet. And then we have this very interesting couple of verses. Chapter 15 We read this. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. There God gives us the reason for wilderness life. To test us. It's all there. The text is both predictive and resumptive, which means the text is indicating that the test has already begun and is going to continue. Chapter 16 and 17 are a continuation of this test. What did the testing reveal? Did they pass the test? Answer, no. How do we know that? Because of the way we responded to the test. How did they respond to the test? Parents, (laughs) grumbling. Grumbling. Uh, Listen, on a purely lexical level alone, grumbling is the dominant theme in this story. From 1522 to 17.7, without question, On the lexical level alone, grumbling is the dominant theme. It happens ten times. Ten times that word is used in this passage. And then its cousin uh, word, quarrel, is used another three times. So on a purely lexical level alone, the theme of this story is complaining. It's complaining. The testing brought about complaining. The lack of something the Israelites thought reasonable brought on their complaining. The late uh, Jerry Bridges, about a dozen years ago... Uh, wrote a book entitled Respectable Sins. Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. Which is both a a very clever and insightful title. Uh, In the book, he talks about the church's tendency to rightly confront sins like adultery and and, uh, uh, stealing, violence, lying. But then he outlines sins the church tends to overlook the quote-unquote respectable sins. And he identifies envy, pride, anger, impatience, worry, as among those. And I would put in there grumbling or complaining. It's a sin that ordinary good Christians like us still do. It may not be our most pleasant habit, but it's still a rather respectable sin. Now let me be clear when I say complaining. I don't mean lamenting or even necessarily expressing disappointment. 
The Bible draws very careful lines, micro inches apart in its definitions of terms. Lament is not the same thing as complain. The Psalms are filled with lament psalms, where the psalmist expresses pain and disappointment, most often associated with injustice. Psalm 5, Psalm 10 are a couple to get you started. A lament is a truly humble cry for help. But that's not what's happening here. Instead of saying, this really hurts, but I'm ready to receive whatever I must from God's hand, complaining says, this stinks, and I'm ready to rebel. I'm going to rock the boat until I get what I want. That's complaining. Why is complaining such a serious sin? Why is complaining such a serious sin? This became clearest to me as I interacted with youth pastors over the years. I've, there's never been a time when I haven't been on staff with another youth pastor. And uh, pastors on uh, hang out together. We get coffee and we talk about ministry and we brainstorm, we encourage each other, we challenge each other. And, and uh, when you hang out with youth pastors, um, undoubtedly, one of the questions they have to wrestle with is this. Why do teenagers start having a hard time putting up with their parents? Now, from the time God blessed my wife and I with children, this question has become exceedingly important for me to dive into. Why do teenagers start having a hard time putting up with their parents? So, in interacting with youth pastors, kind of sitting at their feet, because they're really on the front lines of this, it, it, they, they conveyed to me a, the kind of a universal thing that takes place with teenagers. When, a te- when that person turns 13, their parents, in the blink of an eye, become dumber. And the moment that boy or girl turns 13, they instantly get smarter. See, if you're five years old, or you're eight years old, even ten years old, and you're upset about something, and there's something you don't like, there's still something about a five-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old, where they look at their parents and they say, okay, that's mom, that's dad. I can go along with that. But, but when they get to a certain age, your parents don't know what they're saying or doing, which is why you complain. See, when a child is five years old, it's more doable for them to do a hard thing when they have absolute trust in their parents. For us, it's more doable for us to do a hard thing when we have absolute trust in the one we're following. But when we lose that trust, complaining comes rushing in to replace it. See, complaining thrives in the fertile soil of distrust. At the heart of complaining is unbelief. It's an attitude that says, I know better. Now, what makes Israel's complaining even more convicting is that all three times they complain or they quarrel, it's directed at Moses and or Aaron, their leaders. But God interprets their complaining as being directed against him. Psalm 95, Hebrews 3, both both pick up this story from Exodus. And it's very clear from those passages that while the people are complaining to and about human leaders, God is saying their ultimate complaint is with him. So do you see why complaining is such a serious sin? Complaining is ultimately directed against God and at its root is unbelief and distrust in him. 
Now let's press this a little further. After God saves you, he leads you in the wilderness where life is difficult. It's puzzling. There he tests you and does so to reveal the true condition of your heart. At the root of our grumbling and complaining about life in the wilderness is distrust. So what is God after here? What is he doing? What's he trying to accomplish in the wilderness? He's actually showing us what the Christian life is all about. He's showing us what ought to be our desire and goal. He's showing us what ought to be first on our prayer list. Not happiness. Not a comfortable life. Not security. But unconditional faith and trust in Him. That is a theme that has not changed. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that was still the theme. That's how you explain this mysteriously alluring tree God put there. It's a test. And God is saying to his people, do you trust me? Do you trust what I say and that what I say is actually intended to accomplish your good? The ultimate good God is after in you, Christian, is unconditional faith and trust in him. But he's also showing us through this how inept we are at demonstrating that. (laughs) He's showing us through the people of Israel who continually complain and grumble. They go through it again and again that we are inept at demonstrating this kind of unconditional faith and trust in him. So lastly, how do we thrive? How do we thrive in the wilderness? How do we thrive in the wilderness? In the third scene of the story, in 17... Verses 1 to 7, Israel is again without water, and they again quarrel and complain. This is what we read there. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Kind of a strange way to get water. Take a stick and hit a rock to get water? What's happening here? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 helps us understand what's happening there. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Watch this. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. This generation that grumbled and complained in their wilderness journey died in the wilderness. They were not permitted to enter the promised land. Hebrews 3 explains why they perished in the wilderness. They perished because of their unbelieving hearts that produced the rancid fruit of habitual complaining. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is giving us a key to wilderness life by explaining to us that the rock Moses struck to provide nourishment to Israel was actually Jesus. Jesus is the rock. Now, what's that a picture of? 
The cross. It's a picture of the cross. The picture of Moses striking the rod to bring forth water demonstrates the cross in two ways. First, the rod represents judgment. Think of all Moses did with that rod to execute judgment on the Egyptians. Think of all that. He touches the Nile, right? He raises it in the Red Sea parts and then comes crashing down. That rod was very active in executing God's judgment against the Egyptians. The rod is judgment. On the cross, Jesus, the rock, was struck because of our unbelief, which manifests itself in grumbling and complaining, among other things. But second, the water that came from the rock meant what to the people of Israel? Life. We can survive now. Because of the cross of Christ, the wilderness does not have the final say. Jesus was struck to take upon himself the judgment that was due us, and he was struck to give us life. Because of the cross of Christ, the promised land is guaranteed. Now, how does this help us thrive in the wilderness? How does it help us thrive in the wilderness? The more counseling that I've done with people over the years, I've become convinced that one of the... One, what makes life, wilderness life such a struggle for most of us is that wilderness life causes us to think, if God truly loves me, I wouldn't be going through this. Wilderness life causes us to experientially wonder whether or not we're loved. Not intellectually, because intellectually we can tell ourselves God loves us all the time. Experientially, the wilderness causes us to question God's love for us. And when we doubt God's love for us, we come apart at the seams. We create the conditions needed for unbelief to germinate. And from unbelief sprouts the toxic fruit of grumbling and complaining. But if Jesus is the rock struck for our sin and life, then one thing can be absolutely sure. There may be numerous reasons for wilderness life. There may be numerous reasons God has led you into the wilderness. But one of the reasons is not that he doesn't love you anymore. Because Jesus enters the wilderness himself. He receives the blow of justice for me. And in so doing, securing for me eternal life. You're not in the wilderness because God no longer loves you. The cross is as convincing a case as there is for his endless love for you. This is the way to thrive in the wilderness. You need, friend to go back to the cross again and again and again and drink from the water provided for you. Go back to the cross again and again and again and remember what took place there was the greatest demonstration and accomplishment of real love. Denise Peraza, 27-year-old survivor of the San Bernardino shootings that rocked our country in 2015. I'm sure you all remember that. Her life was spared not because the shooter saw her and turned the other way. Her life was spared because a valiant man named Shannon Johnson sacrificed his own life by shielding her body with his. Listen to how she recounts the story. 
Wednesday morning at 10.55 a.m., we were seated next to each other at a table, joking about how we thought the large clock on the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving so slowly. I would have never guessed that only five minutes later, we would be huddled next to each other under the same table, using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. While I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words. I got you. Friends, these are Jesus' three words to you. Not just in the time of need, but all the time. The crucified and risen Lord who will never leave you or forsake you embraces you in the wilderness and he says to you I got you I got you let's pray loving Savior, you more than anyone know what wilderness life is like. You endured the ultimate wilderness for us. You took the blow of justice. You were struck so we could be spared. And so Jesus, when we are neck deep in our personal wilderness, cause us to pause and reflect that while the wilderness is unpleasant, you still have your arms wrapped around us. You're whispering in our ears, I got you. Calm our anxious hearts, quiet our complaining tongues with the knowledge that nothing and no one will separate us from your love. Jesus, I pray that you would plant these truths deep in us in the remaining moments we have here this morning so that we may leave here having assurance, having assurance experientially of your love for us. We ask it for your glory. Amen.